I can't think of a passage of scripture that I probably get asked more questions about than Proverbs 22.6. Most of us have been either, uh, depending on where you're at, either comforted or challenged or haunted by the familiar words, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And the promise, the promise seems almost too airtight. Just, just keep them in Sunday school and church, get them to youth on Friday night get them reading their Bibles, do your best to keep them from the influences of the world, though we, we know that's an impossibility eventually. Just do these things and they'll stand up for Christ through old age. And then many times they don't. They go to university they find their faith no longer feels relevant. They read the latest bestseller on some celebrity who's deconstructing his or her faith and they're influenced by it. They get tired of church. And parents, parents who have kids going through this, they usually try and comfort themselves. I've had it over and over again. Parents say to me, no, the, it's not, they don't like church and they're not interested in religion, but their Christianity is just going to look different from our Christianity. And of course, if you mean they won't dress the same when they go to church or worship style is different, that's one thing, but there are certain things that are just basic to Christianity. And what parents frequently are trying to say in a nicer way is, my my children have become atheists. And so to comfort our own hearts with verses like this, you know, it's just, Pastor Don, it's just their Christianity is going to look different from ours. And it's different, all right. It's non-existent. They make unchristian friends, and often they either drift away from their childhood commitment to Christ or they officially renounce their former faith as foolish, sometimes even cult-like. And so here we sit. What's gone? What, what has happened here? What's gone wrong? And then, of course, the blame game. Who, who's at fault? How, how perfect do we parents have to be before we can claim that promise? Where's the line? Do we blame the church? The youth pastors? Has the gospel just... It, it, it works at a certain level, but it won't stand up to the kind of doubts and arguments of their university professor. 
I've seen it over and over again. In this church, I've seen it. And parents are left blaming themselves. Not many of us live with the confidence of a, a perfect child-raising track record. Not very many of us. Probably none of us. Goodness knows there's enough parenting failure to scream from all of our memories. You think back, oh, I wish I had not done that. I wish I had done this differently. Trust me, they don't go away even when you're older. And if parents don't feel guilt, they surely do at least feel discouragement, sometimes depression, maybe even in the face of a text like that, there's an element of like biblical confusion. And so, in this brief teaching tonight, yes, I said brief, I want to try and do two things. You can judge how successfully. First, just so you see where we're going before we actually get there. I want to examine the biblical teaching and assess what's promised and what isn't promised. Because I think we... I think we need to be sure we're using God's word soundly with such an important subject. I know. I've had it happen to me. You've had it happen to you. You pull a verse out. God speaks to you just with one verse of Scripture. I'm not denying that he does that. It's precious. I'm saying don't make that the pattern for interpreting the Bible. So I want to see how does this fit in with some of the teaching of the Scripture. And then second... And this is the challenge. I want to wrap up by trying to encourage parents who, who don't know how to find hope for their sons and daughters who appear to be rejecting the faith. How can guilt and despair, how can it somehow be at least uh, neutered a bit with prayer, hope, confidence in God? That's where I want to go tonight. So point number one. I give you the notes as a reference, but don't be glued to them. I'm not sure we're offered the blank promise that's often assumed in that Proverbs 22 text. Don't hate me. Look up different translations. Here's what I did. The ESV. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Christian Standard Bible, an excellent translation, by the way. I use it quite a bit. Slightly different. Start out a youth on his way. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Probably the most literal. It reads quite woodenly at times. But probably the most literal uh, translation, the New American Standard Bible 22.6, train up a child according to his way. That's a very literal rendering of the Hebrew. Train up a child according to his way. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I think you can see there's at least, there's at least a meaningful variation that's starting to come out here. I don't want to belabor the point, but I think you can see the slight difference. The idea in the last two texts of training up a child in his own way, that is, the child's own way, it's slightly different from training him up, ESV, Christian, uh, uh, King James, 
training him up in the way that he should or ought to go. So, so the verse gets, it's, the slant is a little different. The verse might be as much a warning as a promise. The very literal wording of the text may be saying, a child starting out in his own way, according to his own desires, his own values, is likely to stay with those things for the rest of his life. Be careful here. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a very precious text. In fact, it may be even more precious when we at least include this idea as a warning, as a promise. The inclination of a child's fallen heart, that heart can't be left to its own desires, its own inclinations. It needs repentance. It needs divine instruction. You don't have to be a perfect parent. However, you must entrust your child to God's restoring grace. You mustn't leave him or her to his own way. Well, that's clever, Pastor Don. I'm, I'm not sure not sure I agree with you that there's not some kind of sleight of hand what you just did with that text. And I don't want to do that either. And that's why I said I want to show you some other things from the texts texts, plural. Point number two, the fact that this Proverbs text may be a warning text is backed up by the example of the scriptures. Let me give you a few. So A, Isaiah 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, and here you have divine parenting words from Father God describing his children. Isaiah 1, 2 to 4. Here, this is God speaking. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Quote, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Children I have reared, verse 2. Children I have reared or raised and brought up. They've rebelled against me. So if godly parenting always produced godly offspring, these would be very strange words indeed for Father God to say because there isn't a godlier father (laughs) than Father God. I mean, consider this. These are the painful words of one who never made one single mistake with his beloved children. Not one. He was perfect in the raising of his children. Say that to yourself. These children that's in quotes, rebelled against 
and despised, those are the words, they rebelled against and despised a divine father who never did one thing imperfect for them. He was a perfect father. They despised him. B. I want to just remember what we're doing. I'm just trying to show you that it's probably not wise to make an airtight case around one verse while ignoring a whole bunch of others. I didn't even list them because there are so many, but consider the repeated examples of kings in the Old Testament. Godly kings succeeded by ungodly sons. Ungodly kings succeeded by godly sons. This just happened dozens of times, over and over again in the record of Judah and Israel. I know that doesn't appear as simple and neat as we might like or even expect. It doesn't seem to be the way things would have worked out if godly upbringing always produced godly offspring. Why did it end up this way? See, I want you to think about the words of Jesus. Two texts, Luke 12, 51 to 53. Jesus is the speaker. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? We sing about it at Christmas, don't we? No. I tell you, not peace, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three, and then he explains what he means. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You, you see where he's going with this. Matthew 10, 21, Jesus is the speaker. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Those are hard verses to read and, and I'm not pretending to have just an inside out explanation of every word that came out of Jesus' mouth, but they remind us that at least on some occasions this Peaceful fruit of righteousness isn't going to be passed on from generation to generation to generation. Not neatly, not tidily, not without exceptions. So from all of those texts and others, I could have, I could have had others, I am simply saying it's difficult to make an airtight case that godly parenting always produces nothing but godly children. I believe many, many times it does. Perhaps usually it will. But we shouldn't pretend to have the final answer for those who sit in pews around us who have hearts that ache because it's not happening that way for them at that moment. This is not a place for simplistic, absolute lectures. The Bible's got different things to say about the subject. Okay, point number three. Where do we find divine hope in the face of what 
many feel is a failed experience of parenting. I, I speak these words not lightly. Uh, the steps that I'm going to give you, they're easy to number, they're easy to list, you can slap them up on a screen. But for some of you, this might be freeing and life-producing. Here's what I would say, A, so 3A. Refuse to pass judgment on your own parenting. The reason is simple. The situations we all face as parents, they're complex. They vary greatly. They're difficult. There's so much that we see through a glass darkly. We don't have all the information. We don't have all the data. All we know is we all who now are or in the past have raised children do so and did so as fallen, sinful parents. And I would say always start here. You might not think there's comfort in it, but there is. Always start here, and I want to try and show you why this matters so much. We know for sure there's no point pretending. None of us was as faithful as an faithful an example 24/7 as we could have been. Not one of us as parents. Not one of us prayed as much as we could have for our children. Not one of us. Not one of us was as consistently faithful to the word as we could have been in every situation. We all, here's what we all have in common, and it's where we should start. We all are fallen parents. We failed many times. All of us. And, and here's my point. Here's my point. I'm not saying this to depress you. I'm reminding you of these things to show how foolish and fruitless it is to base your present peace and joy on the foundation of, look how wonderful I was as a parent. There's no comfort there. Are we agreed? There won't be any comfort there. There's not going to be any assurance found there. Don't start there. There's no grace there. There's no confidence there. There's no joy there. To, to place the hope for your children on the degree of perfection of your godly parenting is to build your house on the sand, for sure. Don't do it. B. Don't run from the seemingly unbearable sorrow of wayward children. Rather, I'm going to say embrace it and use it as fuel for greater intensity in loving prayer. And I want to link together a couple of texts here 
and I'm hoping you can see the connection. First, Romans 9, 2 and 3, Paul writes about his brothers in Christ. He's not talking about his own physical children. But he talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, Romans 9, 2 and 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Listen. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's quite a statement. This one who says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I, 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 you know what? If all of my kinsmen according to the flesh, if they were saved, I'll be eternally lost for their sake. Wow. Then Romans 10, 1. And I want to connect these two verses. Brothers, he's talking about the same people now. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And what I want to, I want to show you is Make the connection, the link between Paul's unceasing emotional anguish. He can't make that go away. You probably can't either. Paul's unceasing emotional anguish and his unrelenting reach in prayer. I mean, clearly, he feels unbearable hurt. He says he feels it anguish, and he says he feels that unceasingly. And I'm wondering if that's why Paul had the idea of pray without. I feel this anguish. I feel it in my heart. It never goes away. I'm constantly, quite a word, I'm constantly, I'm in anguish. Every time you see me, I'm in anguish, Paul says. Paul, how do you handle it? my heart's desire that they'll be saved unceasingly. So so here's what I see. His anguish of heart doesn't make him give up on unceasing prayer. You will not be able to comfort your heart by looking at what a wonderful parent you were. Not many of us has that kind of shining record. Unceasing pain, but not wasted pain. The inward anguish pushes lesser concerns out of his mind. The source of his anguish becomes the fuel for his prayer. The source of his anguish becomes the fuel for his prayer. That's where your hope lies, Paul. There's nowhere else to go. Four. I'm almost done. I have one more text. You're going to think this doesn't belong in this teaching at all. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Now remember Paul's words, I am in unceasing anguish. He says it never goes away. And, and this is the same guy who pens these words. 
do not be anxious about anything. You go, wait a minute, Paul. Unceasing anguish. You just said it. That's what you carry around. Drives you to prayer. Now, here's my advice, Paul says. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if I was underlining, here's where I would underline. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why does it pass all understanding? What does he mean? You pray, and the peace of God that passes all understanding. It passes all understanding because... The anguish of heart doesn't have to go away before that peace becomes real. And we look at that and we go, no, you got apples and oranges here, Paul. And he goes, no, no. So hear me. There is no future comfort or joy in saying, you know, I really did a great job. I don't understand what happened. Because there's going to be a million things that will come to your mind where the job wasn't as great as you think. The anguish of heart needs to become the fuel for prayer. That brings a peace that passes understanding. Because it's felt at the very same time that you feel anguish of heart. One doesn't have to go away for the other to be a real experience. I know this. Whenever we're praying for loved ones and whenever we're thinking of our own children, there's no confidence in our wonderful parenting record. There's no hope there. There's probably not much hope in thinking I'm just the greatest intercessor in the world. Bring those children of yours over and over again and place them in the hand of the one who said, I have 99 and there's one There's just one that's still wayward. And we have a God who says, I can't put my head on the pillow until I go after that one. There's more comfort there than in your wonderful parenting record. And everyone said, yeah. I hope you find that helpful. Jesus even tonight in our prayer groups. With all the things we bring, we will bring the treasures of our heart that are closest to us and we will place them in your hands again, the good shepherd. There is not a loved one that any of us has. There's not a loved one that is more loved by us than by you. You love them more. Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen.